Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Brownsbridge Church podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Brownsbridge Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out more information about Brownsbridge Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Uh, So last April, uh, my family and I went to Orlando for spring break. Has anybody experienced that misery before? (laughs) Apparently you did last year because it seemed like all of Forsyth County was down there and uh, not just Forsyth, but anyone that lived on the eastern side of the United States. I think they vacationed in Orlando last April at spring break. And it was crazy. I mean, people were everywhere and uh, the whole week was, was really just madness. I mean, the parks sold out every day. You couldn't get into any of the parks. And another way this played out was with restaurants. Um, all the restaurants were kind of just coming back from COVID, trying to figure out their systems and processes. And so you couldn't get into any restaurant. And then even if you did take out, uh, it would take like two hours. And so the whole week ended up being for us just trying to like figure out where our next meal was coming from, which is not really the definition of vacation. Um, but this one night we, uh, we said, hey, we wanna, we wanna get some seafood. And so we, we uh, you know, looked at a bunch of reviews online and we ended up finding this place, got really good reviews, uh, Jay's Crab House. And, and uh, we ended up calling and they said, well, we're reservation only, but we have one reservation left for tonight. So we said, we will take it. We were in, we had a reservation. We get the kids in the car, we drive over there and uh, it ends up being this really small um, kind of a family owned restaurant. There was only about four or five tables there. And uh, it's actually a, a family from the Philippines that runs this restaurant. And the mom does all the cooking. She's back in the kitchen. And James, the son, waits on all the tables and makes sure everybody uh, has what they need. That's where they get the name Jay's Crab House is from, from James. And so we walk in and, and James is like, hey, welcome. You know, here's, here's your table. And uh, here's how it works. Just look up on the wall and it'll show you all the different seafood options we have. And then we'll prepare for you. So uh, we look up on the wall and there's everything you can imagine uh, to eat. And so you end up choosing what you wanna eat and you, you order by the pound and then they'll cook it however you wish. They'll steam it, they'll boil it, they'll, uh, they'll fry it, they'll blacken it, whatever you want. And then of course they bring it to the table with hush puppies and uh, bowls of melted butter and a defibrillator uh, on the side. <laughs> Make sure they take care of everything for you. Um, and so I end, up, I, I end up ordering king crab legs, which uh, this is the first and the only time I've ever had king crab legs. Anybody else ever ventured down this road before? Um, and so I, after we ordered our food, James brought over these gloves and a bib. And I'm like, you know, what are these for? And he's like, well, you know, it can kind of get a little messy. And at first I was like, no, nah, I'm too cool for this. And, you know, I don't, you know, but then I was like, no, you know what? I'm going for this. I, I want the full experience and I don't care what it looks like. So I end up putting those gloves on and I end up putting the bib on and I'm like, bring it on. Okay, I am ready for the king crab legs. And a few minutes later, food comes out and it was an incredible experience, y'all. I dominated those king crab legs. Okay, uh, did not leave one bit of meat 
and sure enough, made a mess while I was doing it, but I loved every second of it. And then when I finished those, I just decided I'd finish the rest of my wife's food, whatever she had left on her plate. I think she had ordered some sort of fish. Uh, my mother-in-law, she was there. She had ordered mussels and some other things. I, I finished her food. And then the boys, they had fried shrimp and they left some of that. And I'm like, well, I'm not gonna let it go to waste. You know, that wouldn't be good stewardship. So I just ate all of their fried shrimp as well. And, uh, you know, it, it was to the point where, I'm sure you've been here before, where you eat so much, you kind of have to like lean back in the chair a little bit just to get comfortable. It was an amazing, amazing experience. So anyways, we pay, pay the check and we're, we're, we're getting up to leave and I'm holding the door and the kids are filing out. And Kelly, Kelly files out and I'm about to walk out the door. And she turns around, she starts laughing at me. And I'm like, why is she laughing? And she ends up taking this picture right here. I was in such a food coma that I had forgotten to take my bib off. The euphoria had fully, you know, set in on me and I was just clueless to my surroundings. And of course the kids and Kelly, they were all laughing at me. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I, I enjoyed this experience so much. I'm gonna wear the bib back to the hotel. So I wore it the whole way driving back to the hotel, had the bib on, walked in the hotel. I'm like, oh, that's right. Yep, I did it tonight. King crab legs. Oh yeah. I was, I was really good, really good at consuming that night. But as I think back about that night and I think about all of my life, the reality is I've, I've really gotten good at consuming in every area of my life. And I think this is something that's true of all of us. We, we've all in different areas of life gotten really good at consuming. You could even say that, that we've perfected the art of consuming. And we have a lot of things that help us do this. We have all sorts of technology and apps and things that make it so, so much easier. Like you think about Grubhub and Uber Eats and Instacart. I don't know what your flavor is, but Walmart grocery pickup. Has anybody experienced that before? It's like, you drive through the parking lot, I don't even think you have to stop. I think if you slow down enough with the back of your car open, they'll just throw the groceries in the back of your car. We've perfected the art of consuming and, and, and it's not just food either. I mean, it can be a number of different things, right? Like Amazon, nobody elbow anybody that's sitting next to them on that one. Um, Netflix, Paramount Plus, all the hundreds of streaming uh, services we have out there. I saw somebody pumping, pumping their arms out in the audience to that one. Uh, there's, there's social media. We've kind of, we've gotten our, in our groove with here's how we like to consume our social media. Here's how we like to consume the news. You know, maybe you have it running in the background all day or you have your certain channels or your certain, you know, news stations that you follow. Maybe it's something different. Maybe it's the way you consume attention from other people. You know, you, you know exactly the kind of type of attention you want from others and you know just what to say or just how to act to get that attention. But we've all perfected the art of consuming. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to begin with, but what starts out is kind of our natural instinct. It's, it's a survival instinct to have an appetite, to have a desire for something that eventually turns into this unhealthy desire. An unhealthy desire is for more. This is the only word that our appetites know. More. More of this. More of that. And it's not just more. Specifically, it's more 
for me? How do I get more for me? Again, we don't always consciously think that, but that's what our appetites are leading us to do. And in every area of life, we begin to dial in what we want, our specific preferences, the way we like to experience something. And Amazon knows this. They're watching. This is why when you, when you purchase something from Amazon, it'll say, hey, customers who bought this, they also were interested in these items over here. And we're sitting there going, huh, that's funny. Yeah, me too. I'm interested in those things too, you know, by now. We've gotten really good at consuming. But today uh, we're gonna see that there's something more for us than simply getting more for us. That if all we ever do is consume, we miss out on so much that we could experience in life. And specifically, if you're a Jesus follower, you miss out on the life that he has called us to live, the life that he's offering to us. We won't get there by simply being good at consuming. We're in part two of a series called Out of the Ordinary. We kicked it off last week and we're looking specifically at the upper room, which um, if you're new to faith, new to church, don't know what the upper room is, it's the, the location of Jesus's last supper with his disciples, the last evening he got to spend with them. And it's just an ordinary room. It's four walls and some furniture, yet 2,000 years later, a billion people on the face of the planet know about the upper room. And why is that? We talked about it last week, that when God's story intersects with our story, it takes something that's ordinary and makes it extraordinary. As a follower of Jesus, you can probably point to things in your journey with God, in your relationship with God that he's used to grow your faith. And now that thing is ordinary to other people. It's normal to other people, but for you, it's extraordinary because God used it to open your eyes more to him or to help you take a step in your faith journey. Maybe it's a coffee shop and that coffee shop that was the place where you first began to meet with that group of men or that group of women or that mentor of yours that helped you begin to understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And now you drive by that coffee shop and thousands of people in and out of there every day just ordering coffee to them. It's just an ordinary coffee shop. But to you, it's something extraordinary. Why? Because God's story intersected with your story in that place. And that's what we get in the upper room. It's just a normal room. It should have been lost to history forever, but we know about it 2,000 years later because God's story intersected with it. And so we've been looking at the different gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus's life. And today our lesson is gonna come from John's account, the fourth gospel writer, uh, his account of the upper room. He uh, begins this way. He says, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. John's kind of narrating for us. And he's saying, look, Jesus knew as this time was approaching, he knew that his time had come to where he was going to be crucified. He was going to die. And this is what makes the upper room so powerful. I said this last week that if you, if you knew tomorrow you were gonna be going away for good or maybe going away for a long time and you had one last meal with those that you loved, those that were closest to you, those that you somehow felt responsible for, wouldn't you choose your words wisely? I mean, wouldn't every word be chosen carefully? Wouldn't you wanna know, okay, these are the things I wanna be remembered for. These are the things I wanna make sure they don't forget. That's what's going on in the upper room. 
Jesus knew he was gonna be crucified the next day. And he had one last evening with his disciples. And this is why there's such emphasis on what he taught in those few moments that evening. John continues, he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And again, throughout John's account of Jesus's life, he'll kind of jump in and narrate what's going on. And you can tell because he'll, you'll be in the narrative, you'll be in the story, and then all of a sudden there'll be this statement that kind of summarizes what's going on. John does this, and it's really, really helpful. And it's also a really beautiful part of his gospel as well. And this statement here was not so much specifically what happened in the upper room, although that's included, but really as John was looking back years later as he's writing this account, he's trying to summarize this. He's like, you know what? Having loved his own, he, he loved them to the end. Jesus loved them to the end. And then with that setup, he begins the time in the upper room. He says the evening meal was in progress. We looked at this last week that the other gospel writers give all this detail about how they found the house. And, you know, there was a man carrying a jar of water and they followed him to that house and they talked to the owner of the house and they said, Hey, our teacher wants to have the Passover meal here. And so he showed him to a room upstairs and they got everything ready. And again, John doesn't give any of that context. He just jumps right in says the evening meal was in progress. So we are there in the upper room. The last supper is going on. He says that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. If you're not familiar with the story, one of Jesus's disciples turned on him, Judas Iscariot. And he met up with the chief priests and the elders and they essentially paid a bribe to him to turn Jesus over to him. And John was saying, hey, this was already in the works when we sat down to have our last supper. Jesus knew Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And again, this is a bit of John's narration. In that moment, he didn't necessarily believe this. In fact, the disciples didn't necessarily believe this. They had hoped that this would have been true. But a day later when Jesus was crucified, they all scattered and there were no believers that weekend. But decades later, when, when, when John is writing this down, he's, he's documenting Jesus's life. As he's looking back, he's saying, oh no, now we know on the other side of the resurrection, John is convinced, no, Jesus came from the father. He was the son of God. And this night, as he sat having his last supper with us, he, he knew that all things were under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, and John's saying, okay, in light of that, with that perspective in mind, here is what Jesus did. And it begs the question for you and for me, what do we do when we know that we have some sort of power or authority? What do you do when you're the most important person in the room? What do I do when, when it seems like, okay, I've, I've got more authority in this room or I'm important in this room or I have some sort of say so in this room? John's about to show us what Jesus did. It says he got up from the, tape, from the meal and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. To which you and I would say, that's probably not uh, what we would do when uh, we think we're the most important person in the room. Uh, seems a bit awkward for us. Can you imagine being in the boardroom and being the boss and going this route? That would, that would probably not go over too well. But for the disciples, there, there's cultural context for them. What Jesus just did here, th this is servant's attire. 
they would, have, they would have recognized this immediately. This is something they had seen on a regular basis. They would have had context for it. And, and, and so they would have recognized it, but, but they had never seen a normal person dress like this, much less a teacher or a rabbi or a distinguished person dressed like a servant. So there was probably some confusion. There was probably some concern maybe of what is Jesus up to here? And after that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And again, for us, this seems a bit foreign, but in that culture, this was a very common thing. The disciples had seen this done thousands of times before in the first century. You maybe have heard this before in church that all they had was dirt roads. There were no paved roads. And it wasn't like they had great footwear in that day, no pay less shoes or, uh, you know, outlet mall to go shop at. And so people's feet would just get disgusting. And so when they would enter into someone's house, typically it was customary to have a servant or, or someone there wash the feet of the guests so that they didn't just uh, track the first century road throughout the person's house. So again, this would have been very common for the disciples. They had experienced this many, many times, but rarely did they even know the servant's name that was doing it. They had never seen a normal person do this, much less somebody they revered. And in this moment, they were speechless. Except, of course, for Peter. As Jesus gets to Peter and Peter says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And it looks like a question there, but really it was more indignant than that. It was like, Lord, could it possibly be that you intend to wash my feet? In that moment, Peter is pushing back. He's saying, really, Lord? Really, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies, he says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. You don't realize now. See, the disciples in this moment, they still had takeover on their mind. If you remember leading up to Passover, their popularity was building. Their fame was building. They went to Lazarus's house and had dinner and people were showing up and wanting to see Jesus and wanting to see Lazarus. And then when they make their way into Jerusalem, people are cheering and, and shouting and, and celebrating Jesus. And they're thinking to themselves, yep, here we go. We are approaching that time where Jesus is gonna put on the military armor and he is going to take over. It's about to happen. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you, you don't realize now what I'm doing. So they're confused by him washing the feet. You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand because Jesus knew. Jesus knew. He knew he was going to the cross the next day. And in that moment, it's as if Jesus was saying, look, washing feet is low. I'm about to do something much lower. Dying on a cross is much lower. When you see that, you're going to understand in a different way. But Peter obviously doesn't understand in this moment because he responds to Jesus and says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Imagine that, telling Jesus no. 
Um, I think it's a, probably a good rule for life that you just probably shouldn't ever tell Jesus no. When, when I was reading this and studying this, it made me think I was, I was in the store recently and I was checking out and um, not far from where I was checking out, there was a child, probably about four, three, four years old, pitching a fit with their parent and screaming no in this parent's face, like real, real loud and like kind of swinging and hitting. And, and, and as this is happening over here, I'm like trying just to just focus on, you know, check out, you know, and um, the, check, the, the, the person that was checking me out, like looked over and was like seeing this go on. And she looked at me and just shook her head. She was like, uh-uh, like they should not be allowing that to happen right there. Like you do not say no to your parent like that. In this moment, it's what Peter was doing. No, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus responds to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus is telling Peter, hey, Peter, receive this work that I'm doing for you. Receive this work that I'm doing for you. And this was a picture of the cross once again. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Tomorrow, I'm gonna die for the sins of the world. I'm gonna hang on a Roman cross. And unless you receive the work I'm doing, you're not gonna have any part with me. Yes, I may be your teacher. I may be your leader. I may be your rabbi, but I won't be your savior. And if you can't receive the washing of feet that I'm doing right now, you're not going to be able to receive the gift that I'm going to offer you through my death and resurrection tomorrow. But again, Peter just continues to push back. He says, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter gets so drastic. He's always doing this. He's always going over the top, exaggerating, just way over the top. But this is not just drastic. This would have been much less embarrassing for Peter as well. To have your head and your hands washed was a normal practice. It was actually the way they would bathe in the first century. If they didn't have a body of water to go plunge in, you would have somebody, a friend, a colleague, pour the water over your head and your hands as you bathe. And so for Peter, it was uh, not just this drastic over-the-top invitation. It was a way for it to feel a little less embarrassing to him. We don't know exactly what went down, but we can assume from the text that Jesus washed Peter's disciple, uh, excuse me, he washed Peter's feet and then the disciples' feet as well. Because what John says next is that when he had finished, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. And you can just imagine that moment as Jesus sits back down. Who knows what the disciples were thinking? Like, can we start eating again? Should we start eating again? Does, any, does anybody know what just happened? Like, and Jesus says, do you understand what I've done for you? And they don't answer. At least John doesn't record it if they do. So Jesus continues. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. You are correct. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. I'm your savior. Remember not too long ago when we were at Caesarea Philippi and I said, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter, you spoke up. And you said, Jesus, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You got it right. You are correct 
in saying that. I am the Messiah. I am the savior of the world. That's what you call me. And you're right when you say that, for that is what I am. And now that I, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he gives this little example. He says, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. You call me master? You call me master? You say you wanna serve me? Well, that means if I'm doing this, it means you can never be above it. If your master has washed feet, you can never say that it's below you because you're not greater than your master. No servant is greater than their master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent them. You're my messenger as you say, you wanna carry the good news of the kingdom that I'm sending you out. Well, no messenger is greater than the one who sent them. And if the one who sent you is willing to wash feet, then you can never be above it. It can never be too low for you. And now, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We've talked about this word before. Sometimes it can sound like a churchy word and a little light, a little fluffy, but essentially it, it means that all is right in the world. That you're in your happy place, that, that you're experiencing the shalom of God, the peace of God, the life of God, the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is saying, you'll be blessed if you do them, if you follow my example. And so what Jesus was teaching in our second lesson from the upper room, he's saying that, hey, look, true life, it's not just found in consuming. You're gonna consume, you're a human being, we all consume all the time, but you're gonna be tempted to make it all about consuming. And I'm telling you that true life is, not, is found not just in consuming, but in something different, something better. True life is found not just in consuming, but in contributing. True life is found not just in consuming, but in serving. And now that I've done this for you, you also, should do it for others. No servant is greater than his master. No, no messenger is greater than the one who sent them. This can never be below you. You can never be above it. True life is found not just in consuming, but in contributing. And ever since, ever since this first century lesson, the church, the, the body of Christ, followers of Jesus have been washing feet. They've been serving. They've been contributing. It's been the mark of Christianity. Jesus even said it. He said, they'll know you're Christians. They'll know you're my followers by your love for one another. And here at this church, people are washing feet every single week. And thankfully it's not first century feet. Amen. <laughs> 
It's actually not even washing feet at all. It's an illustration of the serving that goes on, of people being willing to say, you know what? I'm not just here to consume. I'm not just here to get more for me. I wanna be one who, like Jesus, comes to contribute. What can I do to help? How can I serve? And again, all over this church, that's happening every single week. And just like the upper room, that was an ordinary room, four walls and some furniture, but it became an extraordinary room because God's story intersected with it. It became an extraordinary room because of, in part, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There are ordinary rooms all around this building that become extraordinary in the lives of people that walk through our doors when people are willing to step up and serve. When they're willing to be here, not just to consume, but to contribute. And I want you to hear the story of one room in particular. It was an ordinary room, became extraordinary in the life of some of our attenders. Check this out. Hi, my name is Andy Pirtle, and I've been married to Jared for 13 years. We have two daughters, Dylan, who's 10, and Reese, who's eight. When we first started attending Brown's Bridge, Reese was just two years old. And at the time, she suffered from pretty severe anxiety. We first noticed her anxiety in infancy and believe it was a result of her medically fragile beginnings and needing around-the-clock care. We hadn't um, attended a service together as a family ever. Um, we, my husband and I would split up services where he would go um, one Sunday and take Dylan to Wombaland and I would stay home with Reese and then we would just flip-flop. And that went on for quite a while. So one morning, we just got this wild idea. We were gonna go to church as a family. We had had it, we were going, we are gonna make it happen. Reese instantly knew that something was up, that she was gonna be dropped off. Um, she started hiding her face and the tears were already in her eyes. Um, during the whole registration process, she wouldn't even look up. Miss Angela, the hall leader, checked us into room 111, and I was explaining to her that we did expect Reese to cry, and that was okay with us, you know, but to call us if she really got disruptive in the room. And that's when Mr. Jeff heard, must have heard me, because he he piped up, and he, he came from behind the gate, and he said, he's like, I've got Reese, I got this, this is what I do, <laughs> this is why I'm here. And I just, I knew he was, I knew he meant what he said. So we, we quickly handed her over and slipped away. And we could hear her screaming in the hall before, before we got out of the, before we got out of Wombaland, but we went on to service and we kept an eye on our phones and just, we just knew we would get the call that she would need to be picked up. I don't even know if we heard the service because we were so focused on our phones trying to figure out if we were going to get the call or not, um, which never came. So she had she had actually made it through like her first service or first anything actually. So we were the first parents through the door um, in the Wombaland Hall, and standing right there, right at the front, was Mr. Jeff holding Reese. And I just remember he he leaned in and he whispered to her. See, I told you mommy and daddy would come back to get you. <laughs> and she was just smiling at him. 
And it was crazy because we had never seen her smile at anybody um, outside of our family members. We were just amazed. Um, <laughs> but we left that day wondering, was it a fluke? We didn't know, but we came back. <laughs> we came back the next week, um, the next Sunday and the Sunday after. From that time, I can tell you that the changes that we've seen, you know, from her her experiences in this classroom at 111, it's not just here. It wasn't just at church. It was, it's everywhere. We, we have seen just from the influence that has come from that room and room and those volunteers that just poured into her and just gave her the confidence that she needed to trust herself and to trust other people. We can just see that in every area of her life. Eventually, she would go to dance class and we, I will never forget the first time I dropped her off at preschool or kindergarten. And I just, every time a moment like that would happen, I just knew it was the foundation she had gotten here um, in that room with those volunteers. And eventually we joined guest services team um, as auditorium ushers. I'll say for Jared and I, it's just the best opportunity to give back to the church that gave us so much. And we just we just know that at any moment you can, you know, be influential in somebody else's journey and we just we don't want to miss it. It's just an ordinary room. I mean, it's just four walls, a baby gate, and some kids' toys. There's some fish probably painted on the wall, something fun for kids painted on the wall, but it's just an ordinary room. And it became extraordinary for the Pirtle family because some people were willing to wash some feet. Think about, think about what it meant to the Pirtles that day when they showed up, that there were some people willing to say, what can I do to help? How can I serve? I love what Jeff said. He said, this is what I do. You know, give, give Reese to me. This is what I do. This is why I'm here. I'm sure Jeff has a lot going on in his life that's really important, but he's chosen to take this time to go, no, I'm, I'm gonna be here to contribute. And man, what a difference it made for the pearls. It was a life changer for them. And I love that their response was, it, it impacted them so much that they chose to not just consume, but also contribute as well. And they're on our guest services team now, serving at 9 a.m. And y'all, this is just one story. This is just one story of hundreds of stories of impact. And room 111 is just one room of countless rooms that have become extraordinary rooms for people because of the seemingly small step of serving that people have taken to fill those rooms and to say, we're here to help, we're here to contribute. What can we do to help? It seems small to us, but it's a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And every single one of us, every single one of us should do this. Every single one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you call this church home, there is a place for you to serve. There's a spot with your name on it. 
And if you don't fill that spot, it's not gonna be the same. We might be able to track down someone else to fill that spot, but it wouldn't be the same for the people that are walking in these doors and it wouldn't be the same for you. And I realize that there's plenty of excuses. There's plenty of reasons not to do it. But I just wanna encourage you today that if you say yes to the excuses, if you say yes to the, the reasons not to do this, you, you know what the result's gonna be. You know what life's gonna look like. Nothing will change. But if you say yes to Jesus in taking a courageous step to, to step up and serve in this way, there's no telling what he'll do in your life and in the lives of those who walk through our doors every single week. So say yes. However God is leading you, say yes. In just a second, I'm gonna put a QR code up on the screen that you can scan to get more information. But before I do, I just wanna say this, that uh, us preachers, we're, we're pretty insecure. Um, it may look like we're all tough and we've got it all together when we're up here preaching, but we're actually pretty insecure. But most Sundays when you preach, people just stand up and they walk out of the room and there's no real, like, real quick feedback on how you preach. And uh, not so when you put a QR code up on the screen. So here's what I want y'all to do. I, want y to, I need y'all to help me feel better today. Um, I'm gonna need y'all's help in this. So I want everybody, everybody that's in the room today, and if you're watching online, pull out your phone and I want you to scan this QR code. Go ahead and pull out your phone right now. Everybody's gonna do it. Because again, y'all, I get a little insecure on days like this. And I, again, I just, I need a, a pat on the back. If you're watching online, you can scan the QR code or you, or you can go to brownsbridge.org serve. It's gonna ask you for your name and your email address. And I think your cell phone number. And then just pick an area. Pick an area to find out more about. Even if you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that I'm gonna do this. Just, just pick one area and hear from them about what it would look like to serve in that department. Could be kids, could be students, could be adults, could be guest services. Again, we have all, all sorts of different positions that you could try out. But I want you just to fill that form out and hear a little bit more about what it would look like to serve. Again, I don't want you to just do this because I said you should do it. I don't want you to do it just because we have the need and this is a big church and we wanna be welcoming and create a great experience for the community. I want you to do it because your savior invited you to do it. When he said 2000 years ago, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you know them no, you'll be blessed if you, if you agree with the message. If we think, oh, you know what? That's really, yeah, I agree with you. I love that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Oh, me, I'm, I don't wanna do it. No, no, I love that he did it. No, he says, you'll be blessed if you do them. Be blessed if you do them. Let's be that kind of church. A church that says, you know what? I'm not just gonna consume. I'm not just gonna show up and get more for me. I'm gonna show up and say, hey, what can I do to help? How can I serve? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this message today um, that John documented, being able to see into this scene that happened 2000 years ago and Jesus, the amazing humility that you had to wash your disciples' feet. 
and the model and the example that you set for each of us who um, would choose to follow you. You've modeled the way for us. And God, I just confess that I need help doing this, that we all need help doing this. So wherever we are on the journey, wherever we are with faith, whether we're just investigating or whether we've been a Christian for many, many years, would you show us clearly what it looks like for us to wash others' feet, to serve, to not just consume, but to contribute? Would you show us that? And then would you help us have the courage to take a step in that direction? In Jesus' name, amen.